together. Our Father, we come to you now looking to be instructed from your word. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to trust your promises, to wait for you to do as you have said you would do. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us to find our identity in knowing you, in walking with you, in being in communion with your people. Lord, I pray that you would cause your word to be living and active in our hearts, and I pray that it would keep us from being led astray by the world, from allowing the world to tell us who we are or how we should live. Lord, even at the level of our emotions and our affections, I pray that you would make our instincts line up with what your word teaches us to be. Lord, we ask that you do this by means of your word as your spirit works for the glory of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 21. And I want to do something a little bit different this morning. If you're here for Sunday school, you've been sitting in this room for a long time. I know we had a little bit of a break, but normally, you know, when we're not in this COVID different time, uh, we'll be standing and singing. So this morning, I want to invite you to stand with me, and I'm going to read Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. Moses writes here in Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. The Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah, as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is the word of the Lord. And you may be seated. <clears throat> I want to begin this morning by celebrating with you what we find in this passage. We first met Abraham when he was 75 years old back in Genesis 12. End of Genesis 11, beginning of Genesis 12, he's 75 years old, and now he's 100 years old. And across the, that 25-year span, he has been looking for the birth of this child. And you'll remember that the Lord had said to both Abraham in Genesis 17 and to Sarah in Genesis 18 that when the child was, bo was born, he would be named Isaac. Now, Isaac in our language just sounds like a name. But in Hebrew, the word of the, the name Isaac 
comes from a word that you could translate, he laughs. So it's like, you know, you put the pronoun with the verb and you smash them together to make a name. He laughs. That's the kid's name. He laughs. You're going to name him He Laughs. And the reason that they were told that they were to name the child that was because when it was announced, they laughed. They thought, this is preposterous. We've been married all these years and never had a child. And now we're so old. Abraham's 75. Sarah's 10 years younger than he is. And now we're going to have a child? And it's that kind of incredulous, unbelieving laughter. And the Lord says, yeah, you're going to have a child, and you're going to name him. He laughs because you're laughing at this. And now, here in Genesis 21.1, the Lord visited Sarah. And then notice the emphasis on this passage again and again and again and again on the word of God. As he had said... And Moses is making a very important point here. Moses is is telling us, if God says he's going to do something, you can count on it. It may seem laughable, but if God says he's going to do something, you can count on it. I mean, we saw in Genesis 19, didn't we? Genesis 19, the the two uh, representatives of God, they come to Lot in Sodom and they say, get out of this place. Get anybody connected to you. The, son, the men who are going to marry your... Get them out of this place. And Lot obeys. And he goes to those young men and he says, Get out of here. God is about to destroy this city. Do you remember how they responded? They thought he was joking. They laughed at him. And, and Peter takes that and he says, People are going to mock you today. Let, let me encourage you that you should tell... You should warn people of the coming judgment. You should warn people of the coming destruction. And if they laugh, you can just say, hey, we've seen this before. Let me tell you about Lot's sons-in-laws and how they laughed and what happened to them. And, And even Abraham laughed at what God said he was going to do. And God did what he said he was going to do. The Lord visited Sarah. Uh, This idea, I I, I appreciate that the ESV renders it, the Lord visited Sarah because Uh, Later in the Bible, we'll read, for instance, when there's a a famine in the land of, of, uh, well, there's a famine in the land of Bethlehem, and then when the Lord provides them food in the book of Ruth, uh, it's described as the Lord visiting the land and providing bread. The Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah, as he had promised. And we've been going through these promises, how again and again the Lord has, has promised to Abraham that Sarah would have a child. And as we, as we look at this passage, I, I want to take this opportunity to remind you of what the Lord has promised Abraham. He's promised him not only a child, but also that he would possess the land, that the child, the seed, would possess the land, and also that God would bless them. So land, seed, and blessing, that's what God has promised to Abraham. And then verse 2, Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son... In his old age. And then drop your eyes down to the end of verse 7. I have borne him a son in his old age. little Bible study uh, tip here. When you see re- repeated phrases like this, 
at the beginning of a paragraph and an end of a paragraph, the author is marking off that section for you. He's saying, this is a unit. So verses 1 through 7 are going to comprise a unit for us. And Moses' cue for that, Moses, you know, in the ESV, you've got this subtitle that says, God protects Hagar and Ishmael. Moses didn't put that in there. Uh, the, the editors of the ESV put that in there. The way that Moses is cueing you to notice that there's a unit in verses 1 through 7 is by repeating that phrase, a son in his old age. And then verse 2 goes on, at the time of which God had spoken to him. And we saw in Genesis 17 and 18, the Lord tell Abraham and Sarah at the appointed time, about this time next year, Sarah will have a son. So now it has come to pass just as the Lord said. And the last time we were together in Genesis, you'll remember we looked at Genesis 20 and Abram Abraham put Sarah in jeopardy by saying that she was his sister, and the Lord protected her and preserved her and brought them through, and now Isaac has been born. Verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, and then Moses is going to emphasize whom Sarah bore to him, and then I'm going to, I'm going to render this the way that with, with he laughs, Abram called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him. He laughs. And the reason I'm doing this is because of the way it, it links up with these word plays through the passage. So verse 4, and Abraham circumcised his son. He laughs when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. There's the word of God again. So Abraham is now doing what God had commanded him to do in Genesis 17. Everyone born to him on the eighth day. He's to be circumcised. Verse 5, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Helaphs was born to him. I think Moses puts that in there as if to say, don't doubt the word of God. As if he wants to say to us, it may seem impossible. It may seem implausible. It may seem unbelievable like physically this just can't happen. Don't doubt the word of God. And then verse 6, Sarah said, God has made laughter. So there's he laughs. For me, everyone who hears, he laughs over me. So you can see how the word plays are connecting and echoing through this passage. And then verse 7, there's a little bit of irony here, because now Moses presents Sarah asking, she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Well, we know who would have said that, don't we? God did say that. God told them over and over. And, and it's like Sarah is just making, who would have said this? Well, Sarah, the Lord said this, didn't he? And, and I think also there's a little bit of, and you guys didn't believe him. And, and we're going to have to deal with that, but we, we want to stay here for just a moment. She concludes, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now, clearly here there is an emphasis upon the word of God. And, and I just want to, want to give you some statements from elsewhere in the Bible. I love these statements. And, and these statements tell us what the Bible claims about itself. So Psalm chapter 12, verse 6 says, The words 
of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Meaning there's no dross in the word of God. Psalm 19 verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 119 verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And then I'm going to skip some down to Proverbs 30 verse 5, which is also in Psalm 18, and it's also in 2 Samuel 22, same phrase in all three of these passages, Proverbs 30 verse 5, every word of God proves true. Brothers and sisters, we have the word of God. We have access to the Bible. This is God's revelation of himself. It is perfect. It is without error. You should avail yourself of it at every opportunity. So I just want to encourage you again, in response to Genesis 21 verses 1 through 7, to be to be meditating upon the law of the Lord, in the words of Psalm 1, day and night. Be committing the word of God to memory. Be contemplating it. Be reading it. Be studying it. Be revisiting it. You can't get enough of the Bible. And you will not exhaust the Bible. If you're bored with the Bible, the problem is with you, not with the Bible. The book is fascinating. We, we do have to get over our unfamiliarity with it. And it is unfamiliar to us. Our books don't operate the way the Bible operates. Our novels don't work. Our stories don't work the way the Bible stories work. So we have to learn how the Bible stories work. And, and we want to learn from how these stories are intended to work. Now, I think that what is presented in chapter 21, verses 1 through 7... This fulfillment of the promise is directly connected with what comes after. And what comes after, you know, as as we read on through this passage, you might respond the way I actually, I I listened to a a very gifted uh, pastor preach on Genesis 21 this week that I found online. He's a man with a PhD in Old Testament. He's a a really good student. He's a good man. I I love this guy. And And he confessed. He said, I don't know what to do with the rest of this chapter. And, and it's awkward. It's strange. It's foreign. And, and so the key, anytime you run into this, anytime you're reading along in the Bible and you're like, this doesn't seem to make sense to me as you step back and reflect on it. The key is to, to ask yourself, what is the big point of this book? And, and what, are, what are the big ideas in this book? And what have I already seen in this book? And what am I going to see after this episode in this book? And if you think contextually like that, I think you'll get traction on what's going on in the book. So here's what I would suggest as we, as we move forward from chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. I want to just give you a couple of, of, of things to chew on. First, Abraham and Sarah would have been better off believing the word of God than resorting to Hagar. Right? You remember Genesis 16? So right after this, we're going to read about Ishmael and Hagar, and it's going to be not very pretty, what we're going to read. We're going to feel not so good about Abraham and Sarah. But I think this is part of Moses' point. You should believe the promise. If you don't believe the promise and you sin, 
you're going to regret that. There's going to be fallout from that. There are going to be uncomfortable circumstances that you're going to get yourself into because of your sin. Abraham and Sarah would have been better off believing the promise of God than resorting to Hagar. And that leads me to to give you this to chew on. I would would invite you to ask yourself, what promises am I doubting? What promises of God am I not believing? And are my emotions and my affections in line with the word of God? God has promised that he will save us, that he will be with us, that he will raise us from the dead. And we, we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, seeking to bring our emotions and our affections into line with the word of God and with what God has promised. And to the extent that we don't, we're going to face things like what we see right here in, in, in verses 8 through 13. So verses 1 through 7, God did as he said. Verses 8 through 13, look look what we find here. And the child grew, this is, he laughs, Isaac, and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that he laughs was weaned. But Sarah saw the, the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham. And that should sound familiar because we just read whom Sarah bore to him back in verse 3. Now we get this reference to this child whom Hagar had born to Abraham here in verse 9. And what's he doing? He's laughing. And and it's the same term used uh, for Isaac's name. How are we to interpret this? Uh, Commentators are all over the map. Some of them will say things like, oh, he's just playing with his younger brother. I think that totally misses the point. And the reason I think that totally misses the point is because of what we've seen in Genesis. And what we've seen in Genesis will actually help us to stomach what happens in this passage. If you, if you ignore what we've seen in Genesis to this point, and you think, oh, Ishmael is just playing with his brother, he's just laughing with his brother, you're, you're going to have a really hard time with what Sarah does here. So so let's keep reading. So she said to Abraham in verse 10, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And and then verse 11, when it says the thing was very displeasing to Abraham, literally it says it was evil in the eyes of Abraham on account of his son. And, And I think we can probably feel the emotion of this, can't we? Abraham surely loves Ishmael. Ishmael is his son. And in in earlier chapters, Abraham was clearly hoping that the Lord would establish his promise through Ishmael. And the Lord says, no, no, I'll bless Ishmael, but I'm going to give you, he laughs, Isaac. I'm going to give you Isaac. I'm going to make a covenant with Isaac, not with Ishmael. But Abraham still emotionally is connected to Ishmael. And so this is evil in his eyes. Verse 12, but God said to Abraham, they render this, be not displeased, literally, do not let this be evil in your eyes because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So 
let's just consider this, look it full in the face. Abraham and Sarah are going to drive this woman away from them into the wilderness alone. That seems really harsh, doesn't it? Seems uncaring. Nobody's going to protect her. I mean, Abraham, he has his 318 trained men that we've seen that he uses to fight off the enemy. Who's Hagar and Ishmael? Who's going to protect them? Well, they're going to have to take care of that. They're, they're, They're to drive them away. What is going on here? How can the Bible do this? This is where we need context. If we don't have context, and if we don't say, I'm going to read this in accordance with the perspective of the author, in accordance with what the author wants to communicate. If we don't do that, we're going to have big problems, and we're going to think, wow, this is really nasty. Here here God is telling Abraham to to go with Sarah's really mean plan. Well, that's that's not the way we're to look at it, okay? Uh, So let me first observe, you know, we've seen in earlier passages, uh, Genesis 3.17, the Lord says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife when she told him to eat of the fruit, And have not done as I commanded you, right? The Lord curses, brings judgment on the land. And then we saw that it was actually Sarah's plan to send Abraham into Hagar. And it says in Genesis 16, Abraham listened to the voice of his wife. That's not good. But here, Sarah comes up with a good plan. Well, how is this a good plan? This is where we need context. What have older brothers done already to younger brothers in the book of Genesis? Remember Cain and Abel? God was pleased with Abel, not pleased with Cain. What's Cain's response? Kills Abel. What have we been told about Isaac and Ishmael? The Lord has said, I'm going to make the covenant with Isaac, not Ishmael. How do you think Ishmael is going to respond to that? And then what's going to happen in the rest of Genesis? The Lord says, uh, the older, Esau, is going to serve the younger. Jacob, how does Esau feel about that? He's ready to kill Jacob. Now, Jacob did some things that were not right. He had some part to play in that, but still, Esau's ready to kill Jacob. And then you remember Joseph? Joseph, the younger brother, he's got these older brothers. Joseph gets these dreams. What are the dreams? All the brothers are bowing down to Joseph. How do the brothers receive that news? Let's kill him. That's how they receive that news. So Sarah's plan here is in line with what we've already seen with reference to Cain and Abel. It's informed by Cain and Abel. And what she's doing is protecting the seed of promise. That's what she's doing. She's saying, Abraham, God promised us this child. God has given us this child. We have to protect this child's life. And the only way we can do that is for those two not to be around. And so they have to drive out Hagar and her son to protect the child of promise. And and I'm going to suggest to you that as we continue, this is going to be justified. This is going to be borne out as the right thing to do. But again, you have to read the book in line with what I'm, I'm suggesting is the big point of the book. What's the big point? The big point is God has promised this seed through whom he's, a kind of, he's, a, he's going to accomplish salvation. And then he's tracing the line of descent of the seed. And eventually it's going to come down to Judah. But right now we're to Isaac in the line of descent. And then after Judah, it's going to go to David and then eventually Jesus. And so if, if Sarah doesn't come up with this plan, maybe Ishmael murders Isaac. And we never get Jesus. 
So God authorizes the plan. And God says, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she, listen to the voice of your wife, is what he tells him. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's the line that we read in our call to worship from Romans chapter 9. Uh, God, this is the Lord telling Abraham, Isaac is my chosen one, not Ishmael. And then the Lord does say, verse 13, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Ishmael's going to be made into a great nation. Ishmael's going to be blessed. He's going to be multiplied. But the covenant is not going with him. He is not, he's not intimately connected to the Lord in the way that Isaac is. And then, and then uh, we're, we're going to have a, a new unit starting at verse 14. But before we go on, let, let, me, uh, let me remind you of the passage that Matt Pierce read from Galatians 4 just a moment ago, where the line that we've just, we've just seen <clears throat> there in Verse 10, cast out this slave woman with her son is quoted by the Apostle Paul. And I just want to just give you a sort of a broad summary of what Paul is dealing with in Galatia. What Paul is dealing with in Galatia is he's got some Christians who are, they've believed the good news about Jesus, and they're trusting that because they believe in Jesus, they're right before God. They're justified by faith. But then these, these people come in and they start saying to those believers, oh, no, 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 no. In order to be justified, you need to be circumcised in accordance with the law of Moses. So you need to add to your faith in Jesus circumcision, this act of obedience. And Paul's response to that is, in, if you take on circumcision, what you'll be doing is you'll be earning your justification by your works. You'll be doing something that results in God reckoning you righteous. But if you simply believe the gospel and you trust that it's by faith that you are reckoned righteous and faith alone, then, then you will, really will be justified by faith. And then what he says is, he says, how was Isaac born? Isaac was born because Abraham and Sarah believed the promise. How was Ishmael born? Ishmael was born the way all children, all other children across the ages have ever been born, by means of what human people did. So what Paul is doing is he's saying, you want salvation by works? You accomplish it by your power, the way that Ishmael was born. You want salvation by faith? You let it be accomplished by the power of the word of God, the way that Isaac was born. And then Paul quotes that line, that line, cast out the slave woman and her son. And his point is, you cannot mix the true faith with these other religious attempts, these other ways to get right with God. If you want to be right with God, it has to be faith alone. That's what Paul is saying. And I think there's some of that exclusive devotion at work here with Abraham and Sarah. There, as, as Sarah says, cast out the slave woman and her, and her son, what she's saying, she knows what this entails. She knows what this implies. But what she's saying is, we have to be completely and exclusively devoted to the Lord. And we have to be completely and exclusively committed to the salvation that he's going to accomplish. 
And I, I, I would just invite you to reflect on this, to look at your life and say, am I completely and exclusively devoted to the idea that salvation comes by grace through faith alone? And it's not on the basis of me making the culture think that I'm righteous. It's not on the basis of me fulfilling some aspect of the Old Testament law. It's not on the basis of me pleasing any person or thinking that somehow I have to earn God's favor in any way. All I have to do is acknowledge I'm a sinner. God is holy. Christ died on the cross for my sins. I'm turning away from sin, repenting of it, and I'm trusting only in Jesus. That's all I'm doing for salvation. And if you want to be saved, that's what you must do. That's what you must do. And we would urge you. We would urge you to turn from your sin and to trust in Christ and to embrace this salvation that God has made available. In verses 14 through 21, I think we're going to see, see the, uh, the expulsion of, of Hagar and Ishmael justified. We're going to see it warranted. So verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, one of the reasons that I'm connecting verses 14 with what follows instead of what, with what goes before, if you're looking at an ESV, you can see they, they put a paragraph break after verse 14. But you see the word wilderness there in verse 14, and then if you look down at verse 21, he lived in the wilderness of Paran. And I think that these, were, these two references to the wilderness are uh, bracketing verses 14 through 21. So I'm, I'm, I would divide the text that way. So they go out into the wilderness. Verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And let's just make some observations about, about Hagar at this point. The first thing I would observe is that we've seen this before, haven't we? We've seen Hagar out in the wilderness alone with Ishmael back in chapter 16. Do you remember what happened on that occasion? The Lord actually appeared to Hagar and directed her to return to Abraham and, and, to return and submit herself to Sarah. And on that occasion, she said, I have looked after the God who sees me. And then she names the place Be'er uh, Lahai Roy, which means the well of the living one, who sees me. So on that occasion, she's saying, God saw me. I think Moses wants us to think about that when he, says, when he presents her saying there in verse 16, let me not look on the death of the child. And you notice what Hagar is not doing here? Hagar is not calling out to the Lord who sees her. He's, she's not looking to the God of Abraham. And that leads me to say this. There's a contrast in the Bible 
between a figure like Hagar, who has a child who looks like he could be in line to receive the blessing. There's a contrast between her and Jonathan. You remember Jonathan? Jonathan was the son of Saul. He was in line to be king of Israel. And then Jonathan learns of David. And do you know what, what Jonathan's heart is? Jonathan's heart is, God is king, and whoever God wants to be king, that's who I want to be king, whether it's me or David. And God has David anointed as king by Samuel, and Jonathan rejoices. Jonathan says to David, I know that you're going to be king. And then Jonathan takes the, the, the emblems of the fact that he's the crown prince, and he gives them to David. And he, celebrates, and he makes a covenant with David. He says, I'm with you, David. You are God's anointed king. You're, you're the one through whom God is working. I love God. I love God's kingdom. So I love you. There's no indication that Hagar said something like this. Abraham and Sarah, you guys have been waiting for this child for 25 years. And now miraculously... Isaac has finally been born to you. I'm so happy for you. God made this impossible promise to you, and now it's come to pass. It's almost unbelievable. I'll laugh with you and rejoice over the, the accomplishment of God's promise in your life. I'm so glad to know that Isaac is in the world. There's no indication that she's rejoicing in the fulfillment of God's promise. There's also... No indication that she sees Abraham as especially blessed. And here, having contrasted her with Jonathan, I want to contrast her with Ruth. Do you remember Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi? Naomi says, go on home to your gods. Go on back to the gods of Moab. May God give you a Moabite husband. And Ruth says, I don't want to worship the gods of Moab. I don't want to be with the people of Moab. I'm a Moabite. Yeah, but you're the blessed people. God has promised to bless the children of Abraham. And Ruth says, oh, no, no, Naomi. Where you go, I will go. And where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Why isn't Hagar responding like that? I think if Hagar had said, Abraham, Sarah, I want to worship your God, Yahweh, the living God, nobody else. And I want to rejoice in, in God's promises that have been realized in the birth of he laughs. And I'm going to laugh right along with you. And I'm going to hope in him. And Ishmael, he's clearly not the child of promise. He's my son, but he's not the child of promise. Isaac is the child of promise. We're going to rejoice in Isaac. I think they would have had no problem. And she wouldn't have been driven out. But the fact that she's out there in the wilderness, not thinking about the Lord, not having protested being sent away, it indicates, it indicates also that she hasn't learned from the way that God mercifully revealed himself to her back in chapter 16. She has not embraced the mercy that God showed to her. God was merciful to her in chapter 16. He saved her life. And now he's going to save her life again. And she's not going to respond to the mercy. Let's keep reading and we'll see exactly what I'm talking about here. Look at verse 17. 
God heard the voice of the boy. You, you notice that? Verse 16, she lifted up her voice and wept. Verse 16. Verse 17, God heard the voice of the boy. It's like Moses is deliberately saying, Hagar did not cry out to the Lord. And the Lord did not respond to Hagar, Hagar's cry because she didn't cry to him. God was merciful to her because God, God loves everyone. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? It's a little bit more abrupt in the Hebrew. What to you, Hagar? What's wrong with you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Get up. Lift up the boy. Hold him fast with your hand. For I will make him into a great nation. And that reminds us of the way that we just saw back in verse 13. I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he's your offspring. I suspect Hagar knew that promise. Hagar knew the promise of God, but she gets out in the wilderness and she thinks we're going to die. There's no hope. He's not going to provide for us. He's not going to save us. And she's there because, because God isn't very significant in her life. But God is, he continues in his mercy. Verse 19, God opened her eyes and she saw. I think the opening of the eyes and the seeing again is reminding us of chapter 16. I have seen the God who sees me. And she named the place the well of the living one who sees me. God opens her eyes. It's like, here we are again, Hagar. She saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy. And he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert in the bow. Now, I want to suggest to you that the phrase in verse 20, God was with the boy, has to mean something different than what we're going to read in verse 22 when it says, when, when uh, Abimelech and Phicol say to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. And the reason for this, again, is God has said to Abraham, I'm establishing my covenant with you and with your seed. And then he says to Abraham, I'm going to make the covenant with Isaac. So there's a, a covenant sense, covenantal sense in which God is with Abraham. And I think that indicates that the sense in which God is with Isaac is he's keeping him alive. He's sustaining him. And he is going to make him into a great nation, but there's no covenant between God and Ishmael. And this is further indicated by verse uh, 21. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. And here again, this is going to contrast with what we're going to see with, with Abraham uh, Abraham is going to send his servant to go get um, a wife for Isaac from his, his family. And then they're going to send, uh, Isaac and Rebekah are going to send Jacob. They're going to be concerned to get a wife, not from the pagans. And so I think, what, what would a good indicator be for Hagar here? For Hagar to say, well, it's time for Ishmael to get married. I'm going to go see if Abraham's had any daughters. Because God has promised to bless Abraham. And the fact that she doesn't do that, the fact that she says, well, a wife from Egypt. That's where I'm from. That's who we are. A wife from Egypt. It's like she's saying, I'm with the idolaters. I'm not with, with Abraham. So this wife from Egypt, along with these other indicators in the passage, 
indicate that Hagar has no concern for the God of Abraham, no concern for the seed of Abraham, no concern for the salvation that God is going to accomplish through Abraham. And I think that bears out the decision for them to send her away with her son. And it also indicates, I think, that the, um, the laughing that we saw back up in verse 9 is probably a mocking kind of laughter. And that seems to be also the way that Paul interprets it. When he says in Galatians 4 there, he says, Just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac, so also it is now. So Paul interprets this laughing of Ishmael at Isaac as the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So we've seen God fulfill his promises in verses 1 through 7. We've seen the protection of the seed of promise in verses 8 through 13. And then in verses 14 through 21, we see a wife from Egypt. Now in verses 22 through 34, we see Abraham sojourning among the Philistines. And here again, I think we should think of this in terms of the promises of land, seed, and blessing. And what we see is Abraham, he receives the promise of seed. Isaac is born, and he's going to be blessed. Even these Philistines are going to say, God has blessed you. But he doesn't have the land. In fact, he lives among the Philistines. If you see that there in verse 34, Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So let's just move through verses 22 through 34 quickly here. Verse 22, at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, those two guys will be mentioned again down in verse 32, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, forming another grouping around the passage. And I also would point to the references to a bow, kind of grouping the previous passage, she sits down a bow shot away in verse 16, and then he's an expert in the bow um, down in verse 20. So verse 22, at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. So he enters into this agreement with this Philistine that they're going to be fair with one another. They're going to, Abraham doesn't possess the land yet, but they're going to treat each other right. Verse 25. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing, well, um, they're your servants, okay? So let's just stop here. If your servants sees a well that somebody else possesses and they come to you and say, your servants seize my well, the response is not, the, 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 the right, the just, righteous response is not, I don't know who has done this. The response is, it should be, if you're in covenant with this guy, I'll get those guys under control. And if you didn't authorize it, I think you can say, I did not authorize them to do that, but I will make sure that they don't do things that I don't authorize in the future. So to say, I don't know who has done this, I think, looks like 
I mean, this looks to me like, I mean, no offense. I'm, I'm, look, I'm not from Kentucky. But, you know, before John Calipari was at the University of Kentucky, he was at the University of Memphis. And before that, he was at another school. And everywhere he went, he had these Final Fours vacated. I shouldn't be talking about this, probably. The reason those Final Four appearances were vacated, because they cheated. They kept cheating. And John Calipari, he knew nothing about it. He knew nothing about it. Oh, of course. He, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, my point is, my point is, he knows exactly what's going on, I think, in those circumstances. And, and, you know, there was recently a scandal with the University of Louisville basketball team. Even worse scandal, right? You remember what, what Rick Patino's response was? I didn't know anything about that. Come on. Come on. He knew exactly what was going on. I, I, th I think, I suspect, he knew exactly what was going on. And he probably issued the orders for it to take place. And so when he says, oh, I didn't know anything about that. I am not inclined to believe him any more than I'm inclined to believe Abimelech when he says, I don't know who has done this thing. And then he says, you did not tell me. Well, I'm telling you now, right? I mean, Abraham comes to him and he says, your servant stole my well. Well, you didn't tell me about it. That's irrelevant information. I'm telling you about it now. And then he says, I have not heard of it until today. I mean, this is, he's just protesting too much, isn't he? He's, he's proclaiming innocence from guilt, but I think this guy is acting like someone who's not to be trusted. But Abraham goes above and beyond to try to establish fair and good relations. Verse 27, so Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. So Abraham is saying, look, I'm going to give you these animals as an, as an attestation that I dug the well. Therefore, that place was called Be'er Shavah, because there both of them swore an oath. And the, the last part, Be'er, that part means well, and Shavah means to oath or to, you know, to swear an oath. And when you swear an oath, what you're saying is, I promise to keep my end of this bargain. And if I don't, may, may God curse me. May God's judgment fall upon me. That's what swearing is. There, both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant in Be'er Shavah at the well of the oath. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So what's Moses teaching us here? Moses is teaching us that God gave to Abraham the seed. And God gave to Abraham the blessing but the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, it's ongoing. And the occupation of the land by the Philistines, it's ongoing. So I think Moses is teaching exactly what the author of Hebrews articulates. So I just want to read to you Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 16. It says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. The land of promise, the land promised to him, 
but it's foreign to him, and he doesn't possess it. Living in tents, no house, with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. You know what the author of Hebrews is saying? He's saying, Abraham went to that land. He didn't receive that land, but Abraham understood that the promise of that land was really the promise of God's kingdom. The city that has foundations. And Abraham lived in that land, not receiving the promise, but looking forward to its fulfillment. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Don't miss that. He makes the promise. We consider him faithful... So we believe the promise. Verse 12, Therefore, from one man, Abraham, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Meaning... Abraham never got that land. Abraham never saw the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent removed. He died believing and greeting them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This is where we still are. We are strangers and exiles on the earth. Our kingdom will not be of this world. The enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is ongoing. Verse 14, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, as are we. The one where the city has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Meaning, if Abraham wanted a homeland, he could have gone back to Ur. And if you want a homeland, you can go be part of the world. But if you do that, you'll lose everything. Verse 16, as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. So you see the calculation. You can either have your homeland now, or you can have the better country, the heavenly one. And, and, and those this, cr- this crowd of witnesses, among whom Abraham and Sarah are, they're testifying to us. And what they're saying is that we should, Hebrews 12:1, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And if we'll do that by faith, the end of Hebrews 11:16, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Closing applications here. And and these are applications that I hope and pray you will continue to meditate on. And you will continue to think about. There there is ongoing, spiritual, soul-deep work that needs to happen in every one of us. Because our culture, the world, is trying to conform us to the spirit of the age. We need to think about our identity in light of these things. We need to think about who we are and who we identify with. Are you with 
Isaac and Abraham and Sarah? Or are you with Hagar and Ishmael? You need to think about your cause. Is your cause God's kingdom and God's program and God's salvation and God's promises that are going to be realized first through Isaac and then through Judah and then through David and then ultimately through Jesus? Is that your cause? Is that your program? Or is there some other program of salvation that you're thinking, if we really got on board with that, we'd be doing what's right? And we need to hear the words, cast out the slave woman and her son. Your pleasure, what you delight in, what you you get buzzed by, jazzed by, excited about, what your, your bodily response, your instincts and your appetites and everything says in you, yes, this is so good. Is it what God has promised? Or is it a worldly, greedy, sinful, lustful expression of gratification. Your self-expression. I listened to a lecture by Carl Truman yesterday. It was a really insightful lecture. If you want to find it, you can just Google Carl Truman, T-R-U-E-M-A-N, And then you can Google something like self, modern self, something like that. It was was on some faith and law uh, website. It's it's a profound lecture. He said, he used this phrase that may not make sense to you, but he said, we're all expressive individualists now. What he means is, we all think that the most important, important thing about us is us expressing us, us being us. And, and he used a really insightful couple of, of contrasts. One had to do with worship. He said it used to be that churches had these, these forms of worship that were meant to shape you, that were meant to form you. And now the way we approach worship is we say, oh, I, this is all about me expressing myself to God. So you see how it's how it's flipped. It's gone from us being shaped by worship to us expressing who we already are in worship. And then he, he, he talked about the difference in the way that we think about, about our work or our vocation or our calling. And he said, he talked about how he, he talked with his grandfather and he said, um, did you find satisfaction in your work? And his grandfather answered that question by saying, yes, my work satisfied me because it enabled me to put food on the table for my children. It enabled me to put shoes on my children's feet. It enabled me to, 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 to have a home where my children could live. It was all outwardly focused. Whereas if you ask someone today, all of us, do you find satisfaction in your work? It's going to be inwardly focused. Yes, I enjoy what I get to do because of how it makes me feel about how, who I am as a person. That's what we're, we're all, our whole culture is telling us to be expressive individualists. But if we lose ourselves in something greater than ourselves, if we lose ourselves in, in, in this biblical identity as the people of God, if we lose ourselves in this great cause to make disciples of all nations, 
If we find our pleasure in, in what the Bible says is pleasurable, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Better is a day in your courts than a thousand. I would rather dwell in the courts of my God than in the tents of sin. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. If we find our pleasure there, and if our, if our self-expression becomes, my whole life is about me being Christ-like, which is my whole life needs to be me laying myself down for other people, taking up the cross and following Jesus, brothers and sisters, we will shine like stars, like the children of Abraham in the universe. Just as a final word, I want to encourage you to invite people to hear the life-changing word of God here at Kenwood Baptist Church. I want to encourage you to, to, in, to exhort your friends and neighbors, people in your sphere of influence, to come and hear the promises that they might believe with us what God has promised, that he has saved us, that he's with us, that he's going to raise us from the dead, that they might join us in looking to the city that has foundations. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that, that the Lord Jesus, in the moment of temptation, said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Lord, we thank you that he prayed to you for us. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. And Lord, we praise you that all Scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that we might be equipped for every good work. Lord, would you cause the word, your word, your word of promise to conform us to Christ and enable us to resist conformity to the expressive individualism of our culture. Lord, keep us from being so self-focused, so inwardly directed. Make us new, we pray. Renew our minds that you may, you may be glorified by we, us, by us who follow Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.